Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. On today's show, we're talking about the elements of negotiating a construction contract, specifically using the industry standard AIA contract forms. That's the Architectural Institute of America. I've heard a number of people insist on using the industry standard AIA contracts. I personally like to use them. Some contractors have their own form, and if ever possible, I want to use the standard AIA contracts. These are supposed to be a fair contract that's not one-sided, favoring neither the owner nor the general contractor. But I compare the AIA contract to the standard real estate board purchase and sale agreement template. Nobody would ever use the standard real estate board contracts without alteration. They are, after all, just a blank template. The benefit, and simultaneously the problem with these templates, is that they're very easy to customize. Unless you're familiar with the contract in detail, it's going to take a lot of work to close down all of the potential landmines that exist in these standard contracts. It starts with having a clear understanding of what your goals are as a property owner. The first question to answer is, what do you want the payment terms to be? How much do you want held back until completion? In the language of the contract, this is called retainage. Do you want a 5% holdback, a 10% holdback? The next question is, who's going to fund the construction between construction draws? Will the owner be advancing funds for each stage of the construction, or will it be the general contractor? If the general contractor is going to fund the construction between draws, what is the maximum amount of money the general contractor is willing to advance? When there's a construction loan in place, the lender is going to send an inspector to physically inspect and authorize each draw request. How do you want the draws to be handled? Do you want regular periodic draws, for example, monthly? The problem with that approach is that the value of the construction is going to differ substantially using the time-based approach. What happens if you have a subcontractor that's delayed, followed by a weather delay? Now you don't have a substantial amount of new content being contributed to the next draw request. I personally prefer to have draws linked to milestones that have a natural completion of a phase of the construction. For example, you might do a draw request on completion of foundation, and then another one on completion of framing, and then perhaps another at rough-in inspection, and so on. Understanding the value of the construction for each phase is going to be important to making sure that you have an appropriate amount of money available to fund each phase. Then we need to talk about the structure of the documents. Most people start with the AIA 101 contract, but they fail to include all of the other documents that form part of the contract. The second document is the AIA 201. The 201 document contains all of the definitions of terms that are used in the AIA 101 template. You can dramatically alter the meaning of the contract without altering the 101 document at all. Merely by changing the definitions in the 201 document, you can alter the meaning of the underlying contract. It's tedious, I know. Reviewing all of the definitions is a critical element to having a contract that's going to work for you. The most critical portion of the contract are the design documents that make up the actual design of the project. These include the architectural drawings and the accompanying specifications. Specifications define which materials and components are allowed to be used or substituted for one another. In the absence of a specification, you leave things open to interpretation, and the most expensive way to manage a project is by making changes once the contract is signed. The contractor will have much more latitude to charge extra if you make changes. Change orders are a financial suicide for an owner and they're a financial windfall for the contractor. When I see a well-written specification for a project, I'm usually reading a 600 or 800 page document. That specification is a critical component of the contract. 
and that documents in addition to the architectural drawings. And then finally, we need to consider the lender. The construction contract is actually a multi-party agreement involving the owner, the contractor, the architect, and the lender. And when I say the architect, I also mean by extension all of the engineering specialties working under the architect's direction. The lender will dictate the payment terms. While you may not have the lender at the table in the negotiation with the contractor, you've got to ensure that the lender's terms are embedded in the agreement. The loan is a construction loan, and the lender is looking at the project from the perspective of both a lender and a potential owner. Because there is a case where if the owner defaults on the loan during construction, the lender needs to step into the shoes of the owner and complete the project as if they were the owner. So their concerns as a potential owner need to be taken into consideration as part of the construction agreement. The contractor is probably going to want to push the owner to getting the contract finalized. But understand, the construction agreement is going to be signed by the owner and the lender at the loan closing table on the day the construction starts. The general contractor might be uncomfortable with keeping the contract open for that extended period of time. They will be expending extraordinary amounts of effort with no contract in place. Nevertheless, this is the process for larger projects. And finally, the most important area to negotiate is the dispute resolution section. There will be hundreds of small decisions to be made during construction. Some will involve fixing of mistakes. The owner will insist the problem is a defect, and the contractor is probably going to claim that the owner is changing the scope of work. I personally believe the architect should be appointed as the arbiter of these minor disputes to keep them from mushrooming into a major dispute. But you need to have sufficient confidence with the architect to believe that they're going to act fairly. And this takes us back to the quality of the specifications. If the specs aren't clear, then the architect will not be an effective arbiter. These are just a handful of the key items that we consider when negotiating an AIA contract in our development company. As you think about that, have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.